Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine, and this is Get the Funk Out. We're just listening to Sarah Jaffe. Uh, that was Bad Baby. I met her at the She Rocks Awards, and she was on my show as well. She's fantastic. If you want to look her up, that was off of uh, uh, her CD, uh, Bad Baby. All right, standing by to join us is uh, veteran pediatrician Dr. Michelle Perro and also uh, medical anthropologist, Dr. Vincent Adams, and they're joining me to talk about their latest book, What's Making Our Children Sick? How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for calling in. I heard about this book and I said, perfect. (laughs) Definitely, (laughs) right up my alley. as I mentioned, you know, I actually have dealt with having uh, sick children, one more than the other, and, you know, there is asthma, and there's all these different things, and we, I feel like we have to be detectives in determining what's going on in our environment and what we're eating. Yes, detectives, and I think moms and need a PhD now to figure out how to feed their children. Yeah. <laughs> so, just so you know, that was Michelle Hawking, and this is Ben Pan. Okay. How did you two ladies come together to decide to write this book? Well, um, you know, our journey started, um, how, this is a very interesting story, a uh, fun story, that we are next-door neighbors. Oh. And Yes, and wow. I had wanted to write a book uh, about this change in children's health that I started witnessing about 15 or 20 years ago, and I was so horrified by it, and I got involved with it through moms groups here in Moran County mm-hmm. and pesticides. And through that work with those amazing women who taught me so much, I learned about GMOs and Jeffrey Smith and a book called Seeds of Deception. And when I read through Jeffrey's book um, about the work of a a brilliant geneticist and plant researcher named Dr. Arpad Pustai from um, the UK, he was working at the Redwood Institute in Scotland, I put the pieces together after seeing his work about chronic disease in children, Mm -hmm. and we can talk about that. But here I am with this fortuitous encounter with this amazing medical anthropologist, and I'm going to let Ms. San tell the rest of the story um, because this is where she steps in um, into the story. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I had this amazing experience also of meeting Michelle, and uh, we used to take walks together, and she would tell me about her practice, and she was talking about an epidemic of childhood diseases. And, you know, it sounded very familiar. My own child had had some of the problems that she talked about, and I realized that you know, the kind of medicine she was practicing was really interesting. And because I'm a professor of medical anthropology at UCSF, and I had spent many years working on uh, issues of alternative medicine, even looking at issues of corporate corruption in healthcare and medical knowledge. Mm -hmm. And um, the story she was telling me about the kind of medicine she practiced was really interesting to me. And I thought, wow, I'd like to write a book about her and about this kind of medicine because it seems to be the missing piece, you know, the story of how to deal with chronic disorders, which are really the the sort of gap in our medical system. Right. Um, And then I also heard her talking about the problem of food and the fact that GMO foods might be affecting our children's guts. And I thought, oh, my God, no, I can't, I don't believe this. I was a real skeptic. You know, like most people, I just assumed that the science on this was settled and Mm -hmm. it was just a conspiracy theory. But the more I listened to her talk and the more I went to the literature and started to read about it, the more I realized, oh, my gosh, this is an amazing problem. We've created this huge social predicament. And and that, that also was really compelling to me. And so 
when I heard her say that she wanted to write a book, I actually remember asking her on the show one day, you know, you should write a book about this. And she said, oh, I've been wanting to write a book. And I said, well, you know, I eventually got to the point where I said, I think I could help you write this book because this, Great. What, what I bring to it is this sort of understanding of the social context and the politics of knowledge here. And you bring to it this clinical understanding. And it really, you know, the book seemed like it would fill a, a missing um, a gap in our understanding of how food and the quality of food was impacting our health, um, you know, in relation to GMO food. I want to interject something. I was very, very sick as a kid constantly, and I ate mostly fast food, TV dinners, and drank lots of soda. And I didn't figure out later on that there was a correlation. And I was having a conversation with my 15-year-old daughter saying, you know, we live in a country with all this fast food and there's uh, high rates of diabetes and all these illnesses. And you go to other countries. I remember uh, going to a lecture at a health expo and hearing Dr. David Perlmutter talk about in other countries, they don't have um, the high, higher rate of diseases and illnesses that we have. That is so true, and that, actually, this is a good point to me because I've looked at this myself, and particularly in terms of autism, mm-hmm. because as you know, um, and if you read the book, and we go into it right away early in the book, that there is a spiraling rate, an epidemic of autistic spectrum disorders, which are these neurologic disorders now affecting anywhere from 1 in 43 boys, anecdotally, anecdotally I've heard 1 in 34 boys, 1 in 68 kids. So this and alone, when you look at other country statistics, they also have autism, and nowhere near as much as we have. Now, some countries actually do, and they're probably as toxic as we are. But in general, other countries have staved off when they started recognizing where some of the links between chronic disease and health of children in terms of food and environment. So, um, yes, we are probably faring we're one of the worst. Our autistic stats are as high as, I think, some other countries. I think Hong Kong is as bad as we are and other countries not so much. And then we have populations of people when they travel, they are able to eat certain foods that they cannot eat here in the U.S. And different disorders and diseases clear when they travel. I've heard from amazing different countries everywhere, from Portugal to Israel, that they get better, Ireland, they come home and their diseases flare. Right. And boy, and in, and yes, I understand that's anecdotal, but boy, it's a consistent story. But epidemiology does tell us that, you know, whereas a lot of people in poor, under-resourced countries do have other kinds of health problems still. There's a chronic problem of malaria, TB, you know, the infectious diseases, the bacterial infections. There's a lot going on there. In fact, there's still a high infant mortality rate for children under, um, uh, and childhood mortality rate for children under five in a lot of these countries. Mm -hmm. But they don't have the chronic morbidities that we have. They have a different profile of disease. So the the chronic morbidities that Michelle uh, attends to in her practice, you know, the kids with the the allergies, the immunities, the digestive disorders, the eczemas, the the neurocognitive problems, these are on the rise in our country, and these really don't have a big presence in the the, the sort of under-resourced countries. You know... um I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking, looking back when I was little, and I was uh, had so much eczema, and I was allergic to the let's see the carpeting because I didn't know I had a dust mite allergy, and milk, and eggs, and and I feel like the only solution a lot of times is people think they'll just throw medicine at this, where you have to obviously think what is my kid eating, what's in their room, what's in our environment, in our house. So this is very strange, and that's what we have to look at, both what's affecting their internal milieu and the external milieu. And you're absolutely right that these 
new foreign proteins, for example, genetically modified food, and the pesticides that go with it, mm-hmm. have altered our gut function in a way that has altered our immunity. Because remember, uh, 70% of your immune function comes from your gut. So it's altered our, our immunity, it's altered our intestinal lining, so it's become more permeable. It's, it's changed the microbial balance of our microbiome, those germs in our gut. Mm-hmm. And this has changed our immune function and then has produced such disorders as eczema, allergies, um, asthma, etc. So all those diseases call atopic diseases. Now, so, but if you put those diseases against in the medical model that we now practice in, you know, conventional medicine, that conventional medicine only offers pill for ill, and we talk about this in the book, and doesn't get to the root cause. Mm-hmm. Pill for ill medicine, all you're going to get is a drug to stop the symptoms, not get to the cause. Yes. But if you look at the cause of this, alarmingly growing group of disorders, particularly food allergies, which every kid has a food sensitivity or allergy now, mm-hmm. the root cause lies in the gut. If it's in the gut, it's in the food, in the water, and the external environment. And our kids now are a toxic soup. Yeah, and I mean, I would just yeah. add that your comment about how the medicines that are available and used in mainstream medicine tend to be like Band-Aids. They are yeah. the analgesics, the, um, you know, the... Uh, analgesics, anesthetics, painkillers, uh, symptom reducers, antihistamines, things like this, and, and even in the world of cognitive problems, some of the psychotropics, that just try to uh, treat by way of medicines that are singularly focused on the symptoms, not on the root causes. And I've heard Michelle talk about this a lot, and, and really it's part of the integrative medicine and functional medicine um, focus, where you're trying to get at the underlying cause. And we do, in the book, talk quite a bit about why this has happened in the medical system. Like, why is it that doctors are so oriented toward using um, pharmaceutical remedies that really only deal with the symptoms as opposed to looking at underlying uh, models of disease, models of health, models of the body uh, that really start with a systemic orientation toward what we think is the most important part, which is the gut. And that is changing somewhat now that we know more about the microbiome in the gut. Uh, but it, it's really a, a problem. We also have, talk about how, you know, doctors don't typically like to think about food as a solution. And there's a good reason. I mean, people are very loath to change their behaviors. But um, it's also because they're not taught much about food in medical school. Right. And so, you know, we really do think that the problem isn't just that we've got bad food. It's the whole system of the way we practice medicine and the the politics of knowledge around the science that are contributing to this problem. Sure. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Dr. Michelle Perro and Dr. Vincent Adams, who's ri- who have written this great book, What's Making Our Children Sick? How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. So what would you like people to know about this book? Well, what I'd like to say is I think people will feel reassured that they are not alone in this journey with their own sick children, that we now have this unfortunate massive epidemic of disorders. One out of two American kids is now chronically ill. So I think parents, will, parents um, grandparents, educators, legislators um, will get the message that we've got a situation here and feel, wow, it's not just me. Mm-hmm. I think that's important that people don't feel isolated because so many people go to their pediatricians or their physicians and they are dismissed 
um, ignored, treated rudely, the whole gamut, and we talk about that in the book as well. Yes. So that's one thing. The second thing is that it explains, and I think in a way that is um, a readable explanation, because the genetics of food is complicated. This is not a simple topic, by the way, and I hope that, you know, Vincent and I have really kind of made it um, a readable, digestible, no pun intended, well, pun intended, <laughs> form of, um, you know, of information that they can then use themselves or give to their own physicians, etc. And thirdly, what I'd like to say, it's a call to action that they can not only change for themselves and their own family, it's like try it yourself, eat organic, see how you feel, right. that it'll empower people to make the change within their family, but into the larger context, which um, Vincent can talk about because she talks about it so beautifully, is how to take, make this change from within and the individual to the larger um, social um, co-op of larger society. Yeah, we, we talk about sort of three target communities that we want to uh, focus on and pay attention to. And one is the what we call the warrior moms. Michelle has, has been treating patients and, and working with moms for years, mostly moms. It's not only moms, but mostly moms. And these are the ones who really have been treated, I would say, unfairly by the popular press and by media. You know, they get accused of being overly protective. They're overly concerned about their kids' diet. And really, we see them as women who are struggling desperately to keep their kids healthy right. against the naysaying of communities and sometimes even family members yeah. from schools, whatever. They're managing the play dates. They're managing the grandparents. They're managing everybody. And they're really trying hard, and they need support. So we call them warrior moms, and we call out the need to pay, you know, to support them in this effort because what they're talking about is real. We also talk about the need to rethink the environmental models, the agricultural models that we're using, getting beyond uh, what what has become a real, what some people call the zombie paradigm of agriculture, where we treat our food uh, growing systems with huge amounts of agrochemicals that are harmful to us. We design food that's uh, designed to be grown with pesticides or that's been turned into pesticides in their own right. And then we must replete, replenish the soil with more chemicals in order to grow healthy food. And that's just a dead-end paradigm. And we keep you know, getting weed resistance and uh, insect resistance that calls for more and more toxic chemicals. And we really need to rethink and really support the organic movement um, on, on a profound level, not mm-hmm. just on a, a sort of local, you choose to be organic level. It needs to be a public health issue. And then the third group that we really call out to is the scientific and doctors who, a doctor communities who are, are part of the no, they're part of the resistance to the anti-GMO movement. That is, they support the use of GMO foods for reasons that, you know, we talk a little bit about in the book, um, and they might not know the whole story about what these foods actually are. Yes. And so we talk about this thing called eco-medicine, where we really need to think about the model of health as one that's connecting the soil, the health of the soil to the health of the gut, which is so crucial for the health of human beings. Sure. So I have a couple questions. <laughs> Wait, I, I have a couple questions because you talked about this. Uh, first of all, there's a word. Uh, is it glyphosate? Yeah. Yeah. Can yeah. you can you talk about that and share what that is? Yeah, that is important for every single person to know what glyphosate is because it's in everything we eat. Glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup. It's um, in over 730 formulations of various herbicides. It's an herbicide, which falls into the category, bigger category, pesticide. It is, was designed to be sprayed on certain crops that don't die when you spray it. 
Mm-hmm. They're called herbicide tolerant crops or Roundup Ready crops. And what glyphosate does, it's a very interesting little molecule. It's very simple. It's been around since the 70s, actually the 50s, but in use since the 70s. It's been around a long time. It works on different mechanisms, and one is it works as an antibiotic. It works as a metal chelator, which means it binds certain metal nutrients such as calcium, magnesium, manganese, copper, very important nutrients that you and your family need to function, body function. It also works to prevent detoxification, and it's on the liver system, called the cytochrome P450 system. And lastly, it's been shown to be a carcinogen in animals and a probable carcinogen in humans by the World Health Organization in March of uh, 2015. And so when it's formulated with Roundup, which has inert ingredients, and my little fingers are moving in quotation marks, Mm -hmm. these inert ingredients are proprietary formulations by the various companies, Monsanto being the biggest producer, and those inert ingredients, um, which themselves make glyphosate even more toxic. And there are some researchers who feel that that those inert ingredients are actually even more toxic than glyphosate. Um, there are researchers in France, Dr. Cerellini, who feels that way. And they, for example, break down cell membranes and allow glyphosate to enter cells. Glyphosate now, a study just came out today that has now shown that if you are eating non-organic corn, GMO corn, because the corn of this country is all GMO, yes. about 94% of it, that it has six parts per million of glyphosate, which is massive. Whoa. It's that, it doesn't sound like a much, six yeah. parts per million, but it's massive, and it's higher than what our USDA allows. And that study just came out today, and it's significantly higher than what's allowed in other countries in Europe. So art, and it's in ubiquitous, it's in everything, granola bars, it's in cereal, it's in wheat bread, it's in everything, both foods that are modified, genetically modified, such as soy and corn, and foods that are not genetically modified. So I just could add in there, just backing up a little for readers in case they don't know, but the kind of genetic modification we're talking about, mm-hmm. and one of the most ubiquitous, as Michelle says, that's used in the United States, uh, is that called Roundup Ready crops, which means that these are crops that have been designed so that you, they can be used with Roundup, that is glyphosate, okay. and not die. I see. So the increases in the amount of Roundup that are being used on crops has gone up 240-fold over the last decade alone and probably higher than that. And so if you don't have the genetic modification, you can't use the Roundup. Or you use it on your... In fact, people are using it in their gardens and on playgrounds well, and everywhere else. that's and what I was going to say. Excuse me one second. Yeah. Imagine, I think there should be a study... Uh, where, you know, you look at people, they're growing at home, they're going out, they're buying stuff, they think they're doing this wonderful thing, planting this beautiful garden with tomatoes and cucumbers or whatever, and do they end up with cancer? Well, some people do, apparently. Well, you know, it's interesting because the spraying happens at school, for example, and the spraying happens in your neighbor, and the Mm -hmm. spraying is happening aerially. Yes. And, you know, and it's so kids, especially kids in rural areas, are, are receiving massive amounts of these herbicides and other chemicals as well, not just glyphosate, there's lots of stuff that they're getting, school, home, and the food. And because our kids are sicker than we are, this is the first generation of kids who will not live as long as their parents. We have a first generation of sicker kids that they then starting um, not as healthy, and now they're, they're triply exposed. 
And there are no studies you should know, and you probably do know, looking at the role of these pesticides and herbicides, along with other toxins and toxicants, such as plastics, um, solvents, um, electromagnetic frequencies, uh, you name it. Um, and in here in California, 100% of us um, have flame retardants in us, PBDEs. And PBDEs are toxic in themselves. So when you look at this toxic soup, um, there are a lot of good studies on this in terms of what chemicals we have. Nothing on the cumulative soup, toxic soup, on health effects, particularly the glyphosate, which is now we're all exposed to. And could I just add one more piece of the puzzle Please. here that was so compelling for me in all of this is that, yeah. you know, when they designed the Roundup Ready crops, because we really do focus on food, we don't just count these other toxic exposures in the book, but we really focus on food because, let's face it, people are putting it in their mouth three times a day, and, mm -hmm. and for kids, that the impacts are huge. So one of the things that I found out about glyphosate is that when they were just using it to design these crops that could be grown with the use of Roundup, the assumption was that the glyphosate would not be effective on humans because human cells don't have the enzymatic pathway that the plants do that enables them to be killed by this. Oh, I but see. we now know that the microbiome has microbes that do have this pathway. And so the impact of the glyphosate is on our gut microbes, not on our human cells, but on our microbial cells. And since we know that it's a patented antibiotic, there are large questions about whether it's having an antibiotic-like effect on the gut, in addition to other effects that sure. Michelle was talking about. Let me ask you a question, because some listeners might be thinking, what's a microbiome? Ah, yeah, this is, this is a great question, and this, the microbiome is the, on the forefront of medicine, and it is, it is the, one of the key components to health. And the microbiome is a collection of organisms that we have throughout our bodies, from our mouth to our tushies, on our skin, in our eyes, in our teeth. And these organisms, and them themselves, have been considered almost now an organ, mostly concentrated in our gut, in our large intestine, the lower part of our gut, and this microbiome, these collection of organisms that live in symbiosis together and they live in community, we live with them and they help us do a lot of things. And one of the most important things they do is they talk to our immune system and they are responsible in large part for our immunity. So, for example, when a baby is born through the vaginal canal, it acquires the, mom's, the baby acquires the mom's microbiome, which those organisms, those healthy germs, talk to the baby's immune system to set it up for a part of its immunity called innate immunity. So in addition, these organisms are very sensitive. Some of them, like lactobacilli, people know that that may be in yogurt, yeah. are very sensitive to the effects of some chemicals, like glyphosate that you mentioned earlier. And what we know is, for example, in chickens, when they are exposed to glyphosate, the healthy microbiome, these microbes, like lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, super healthy ones, die off. And the pathogenic bacteria, the bad, the bad players like Salmonella and some Clostridial species, not all, grow. Now, we have no human studies on that, and I'm hopefully involved with a study right now on that very topic, looking at the effects of glyphosate on the human microbiome. But for now, we have to extrapolate data from chickens, cows, pigs, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not that different from some of those animals like pigs, um, so, and figuring out what is going on in kids. So we know that when these germs die off, they live in balance, the pathologic bacteria grow and can wreak havoc. And we now know this, there are so many good studies that have shown specific organisms related to specific disorders, everything from autoimmune disease, diabetes, autism, 
and potentially cancers as well. Mm-hmm. That research is just coming out, so I don't want to overspeak here. But there is a link now, a, a very clear link between those organisms, their role, and what they do in our body, and, and this disease and disease. So that's what the microbiome is. And people need to eat healthy to feed themselves, but also need healthy to eat healthy to feed their microbiome, those organisms. I'm just I'm listening to this, and I know a lot about this, and there's a lot you've brought up that I don't know, and it's so fascinating because uh, of how much illness, as you said, there is. There is. We talk about kids in the book, and we talk about the statistics. We go into it right in the beginning of the book. We start off with the horrific stats, the very depressing statistics on our our children's health. But be clear, this is not just a kid's story. This is also affecting the adults. The, uh, the, the grandparents, it's everyone. And it's rare to find somebody who is completely healthy now. Yeah. Most, pe- most people are walking around with a disorder. Now, some of these disorders are so common that people don't think of them as an issue anymore, where sick is the new normal. That's what we talk about. Yeah. So an adult will be walking around with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, or right. they have chronic migraines, yes. or they have insomnia, and they think, oh, it's normal. Kids are walking around with asthma, ADHD, environmental allergies, oh, everybody's got those. It's normal, right? So we are now accommodating our society to think that these things are normal occurrences, and actually they're not. And what are your thoughts on um, inflammatory diseases, Uh, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and other things like that, Crohn's? So those groups of diseases, they're called autoimmune diseases, where the body um, no longer recognizes, um, um, it begins to attack itself, Mm-hmm. Um, its immune system starts to not recognize what is self and begins to attack it. And we're pretty clear from, um, from the research on this topic that it's stemming from this chronic inflammation that's beginning in the gut and, um, and this chronic inflammation then leading to this lack of self-recognition. Many of these diseases can be pro- are stemming from um, disorders of the microbiome. For example, I'll just very briefly say, let's say rheumatoid arthritis is super common in adults, not as common in kids, that where they have found a particular organism, Proteus moralis, in their guts that seems to be linked to the production of these autoimmune diseases. So it's all linked. You know, we have to understand that the human body is not a system of organs. It's a complex, a complex biology. We are a complex organism, and all these different systems kind of communicate to each other. So this autoimmune disease kind of this epidemic that we're seeing of autoimmunity, which is very concerning because many of those diseases are linked to cancers, by the way. Yes. Autoimmune disease and cancer is linked, stemmed from Mm. disorders of the gut and and also linked to the microbiome. Um, So this is sort of the crash course and super quick response without getting into too many details, but that's kind of a quick overview. And I would just add, one of the things that we spend a lot of time on in the book is talking about more systemic underlying patterns that get set up when the microbiome is disrupted. And two of the problems that you don't hear about much in mainstream medicine, but which Michelle, as an integrative practitioner, really focuses on are things that are called uh, dysbiosis and leaky gut. Oh, yeah. So we do know something about leaky gut, and it's becoming more and more well understood. But uh, there are physicians working, for example, and researchers working on the problem of Crohn's disease, but also on the problem of Crohn-like symptoms that get recurringly um, uh, seen in the gut, and that's from compromised microbial populations in part. That's one of the reasons. 
what happens when you have a, an overly porous membrane of the intestinal tract is that too much passes through the membrane into the bloodstream and triggers this chronic immune reaction, a kind of ongoing inflamed state. And as Michelle was saying, the theory, we don't know for sure, but the theory has to do with this idea that the chronic inflammation eventually can, um, uh, you know, lead toward possibly the autoimmune response. Yes. Well, unfortunately, this first half of the show has flown by and we have to wrap up, but where can people find out more about you? So certainly they can go to Chelsea Green website, our phenomenal publisher. They can buy the book on Amazon or hopefully their local bookseller has it or even their local library. If they don't have it, they can ask their library to get it. Okay. And um, I'm also executive director of a great website called gmoscience.org and they can find me through there as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for calling into the show. This has been unbelievable. Yeah, and uh, um, I can be found at my university, University of California, San Francisco, in case wonderful. people are interested. All right. Thanks for having us. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. My pleasure. You too. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Michelle Perrault and Dr. Vincent Adams calling in to talk about their book, What's Making Our Children Sick. If you missed any part of this, Everything will be up on my show blog right now. Everything, all their bio information and information about the book is on there. It's getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at moms, M-O-M-Z underscore rock. And KUCI is on Twitter at KUCI-FM. We're on Instagram at KUCI-FM, Tumblr, blog.kuci.org. We're going to take a little break, and then I've got more guests coming up. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.